Matthew chapter 13, in verse 33, another parable. He spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and without a parable, he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. This parable has been called the parable of the leaven and the loaf, or the yeast in the loaf. And like the parable of the mustard seed, no interpretation is offered by the Lord. And remember what we've already learned, what we've said in each segment. What is a parable? It's a story. A story that uses something familiar in order to explain something unfamiliar. It's an earthly story that gives us insight into some heavenly truth. How then are we supposed to understand it? What is its meaning? And how does it apply to our lives? There are two broad applications or interpretations, if you will. In the parable of the mustard seed, we saw that the kingdom experienced extensive growth. As we learn that this mustard seed grows and grows, it starts off what seems like insignificant and then it becomes incredibly significant. In the parable of the leaven, we see intensive growth. In the parable of the mustard seed, the growth is external. In the parable of the leaven, the growth comes from within. It is internal. So once again, we're left to consider... Does the internal growth represent something healthy or does it represent something unhealthy? The yeast silently, powerfully transforms the whole loaf. Whatever the meaning of this parable is, we know that there is something invisible and powerful affecting everything that it touches. So does the leaven stand for healthy influences in the true church? Or does it stand for unhealthy influences in the church and the world? Some have suggested that the yeast or the leaven is symbolic of the growing influence of the kingdom of God in the world. In Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 through 20 we see that the kingdom grows. In this view, the meal or the bread dough is the world and the yeast is the gospel which is preached until everyone hears the gospel and is saved. William MacDonald writes, quote, This view, however, is contradicted by the scripture, by history, and by current events, unquote. In the beginning of the chapter, we saw the beginning of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And we just read about it again. That there's something previously unknown that now becomes known. The chapter continued with parables that illustrated opposition to both the king and the king's message. We learned that the opposition came from the world and Satan. We also learned that Satan traffics in deception and imitation and that which is counterfeit. In the parable of the soil and the the sower, we learned that the soil illustrated different kinds of human hearts. The hard heart and the shallow heart and the crowded heart and the fruitful heart. In the parable of the wheat and the tares... Satan planted make-believers among real believers in verses 24 through 30. And then again in verses 36 through 43. We learned that Satan plants tares in the master's field in verse 39. And the tares are the sons of the wicked one in verse 38. In the kingdom, the true believer faces opposition from the world, 
and from Satan in verse 19, who snatches away what's been sown in the human heart by the word of God. This is the person who receives the word by the wayside, the hard heart. But the person with the shallow heart receives the word of God with joy, has an emotional experience. But when persecution comes in, when opposition becomes a part of our life, when tribulation tests us, they wither under the trial. And so Jesus warns of the opposition from trials, from difficulties, from persecutions, from Satan himself. Jesus warned of the presence of false Christians in verses 24 through 30. False growth in verses 31 through 32. And I'm going to suggest to you that almost certainly the overarching meaning of this passage is false doctrine that grows. So which is it? Again, in verse 33, it says another parable he spoke to them. It's interesting, even using the term another parable. The word is alos. It's a word that means, I'm going to give you another example. Or here's another illustration. Another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 12, verse 20, in Luke's representation of this same parable, he says, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? Well, it's like leaven, which a woman hid in three measures of meal until everything was leavened. In the earlier parable of the sower and the seed and the mustard seed, the one who sowed the seed was Jesus. But now we have a new person who's introduced, a woman. Does that matter? Could it simply be that Jesus is using an ancient illustration of a woman baking bread? Since in that culture and society, it was not unusual for the woman to assume the duties of baking the bread. By the way, for those of you who are interested in these kinds of things, and I certainly am, in the ancient world of Rome, there were what my Spanish-speaking friends call panaderias, bakeries. Even in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for you to have butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. Most people in our culture and society, you go to King Supers or Albertsons or wherever you go to buy bread. And you go and baking bread isn't a part of your life. But in the ancient world of the first century... Most people didn't go to the store and they didn't typically even get to go to the bakery. In the cosmopolitan areas of Rome, you could buy all the bread that you wanted. But in the first century, most people had to make their bread. And the bread was usually made from wheat. But if you were poor, like the vast majority of the people listening to this story, you would have made your bread from barley. And the bread was leavened by placing yeast in the dough. Remember, yeast is that agent which causes the dough to rise. But the bread wasn't leavened by fresh yeast. It was usually leavened by keeping a piece of fermented dough from the previous baking and then mixing it with the new batch. You keep a little bit of the dough back in order to provide a constant source of leaven. In his book, The parables of Jesus, Bible scholar David Wenham notes, quote, the fermentation process could be gone by scratch in various ways. That is, by letting barley and water ferment or by mixing bran and wine, the poor would probably bake their own bread in the home. And so the mysterious, powerful process of leaven was at work the dough would bubble and rise. And everyone knew about that picture. Again, David Wenham writes, quote, Jesus speaks of a woman hiding the leaven in three sata. Sata is the Greek word for flour. 
But what you may not know is just how large a batch of flour we're talking about. It would have come to about 50 pounds, enough to make bread for over 100 people. The actual figure, he writes, may have been taken from the story in Genesis chapter 18, verse 6 of Abraham and Sarah baking bread for their angelic visitors. But the point being made is simple and clear. A little leaven can have a remarkably big effect. We're going to leave David Wenham just for a moment. In the illustration that he gives in the book of Genesis, when the angelic visitors come and Sarah makes bread, it isn't leavened bread that she makes. She makes unleavened bread for the angels. David Wenham writes, quote, Paul says almost exactly this in the first letter to Corinthians when he urges them to get rid of the old leaven of malice and bitterness in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. We're invited to pray in the New Testament. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread in the Bible is wholesome and good and nutritious. Bread is good, Leviticus chapter 2, and was permeable or aerated, if you will, by either leaven or salt, the salt serving as an agent to postpone the corruption or the purification or the putrefication, if you want to use that term in the bread. If the meal represents the world, does the woman hiding the leaven suggest a good thing or a bad thing? Does it represent stealth or the introduction of what is evil or harmful or wicked? Now again, in the Old Testament, meal or flour or grain was used in Old Testament offerings. It represented life and nourishment. But it also represented service and fellowship. Leaven invariably represented that which was evil. And in combining the two, the woman in this parable was doing something that the law forbade in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 11. In what sense? Was it wrong to make bread with leaven? No. Was it wrong to make bread with leaven for for service to the Lord? Yes. In the Old Testament, an offering to God of three measures of meal was for the purpose of communion and fellowship. And I found this interesting because in Genesis 18.6, in Leviticus 14.10, in Numbers 15.9, when you would have fellowship, communion, in the giving of the sacrifice, it was three measures of meal. I wonder why Jesus uses that exact amount in this parable that he's speaking Did the law forbid the eating of leavened bread? Not always. Did the law forbid the offering of leavened bread in sacrificial worship? The absolute answer is yes in Leviticus chapter 2 verse 11. Quote, no grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord by fire, unquote. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 verse 8 and chapter, and chapter 34 in Leviticus chapter 2 verse 11, it forbade the use of leavened bread. The Lord God ordered the children of Israel to remove the leaven from their homes and refrain from eating leavened bread from the first to the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The only exception for the use of leavened bread were in the two wave loaves, first offered as the first fruits in Leviticus 23, 17, and then some of the cakes of bread which were offered during the Thanksgiving offering in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 13. Why am I telling you all of this? Because bread was used in a leavened way, In an unleavened way. But look at the story itself. When Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. Look what it says. Till all was leavened. Whatever this story is, it's a story of transformation. 
In the Bible, the word leaven or yeast appears some 35 times. In virtually every single passage, it is a picture of something that is corrupting. Influential, yes. A corrupt influential, almost always. Like I said, in the Old Testament, the leaven was removed from Jewish homes prior to the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verses 15 through 19, and then again in chapter 13, verse 7. It was excluded from the grain offerings in Exodus chapter 34, verse 35. The process of fermentation led to the breaking down of the constituent elements in the decay process. I love sourdough bread. But do you know why sourdough bread is sour? Because it has leaven. That sour taste means that the bread is starting to decompose. Have you ever had kimchi? Some of you may have had. Kimchi is Korean cabbage that's buried in the ground until it starts to rot. And then when you eat it, that taste, that unique and specific taste, is rotting cabbage. If I'm honest, I love the taste of rotting bread. I love the taste of rotting cabbage. There's something inside of us that cultivates a taste for that which is corrupt. It's interesting to me. Yeast doesn't simply transform the host, but it corrupts it, it sours it. The only way sourdough can return to simple dough is by purging it with fire or baking it in intense heat by placing it in an oven until all of the yeast is burned away. And that's how you get rid of that which is corrupting, that which is invisible and internal. In the New Testament, both Jesus and Paul use leaven to describe the hypocrisy and the ritualism of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He uses it to describe the rationalism and the liberalism of the Sadducees in Matthew 16, verses 6 through 12, as they deny the supernatural, as they deny the resurrection, as they deny the revelation that God has given. But Jesus doesn't simply use it to speak of the wickedness and the shortcomings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he also uses it to speak of the materialism and the worldliness of the Herodians in Mark chapter 8 verse 15 Paul uses the term leaven to describe the adultery and the immorality of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 6 through 8 the legalism of the Judaizers in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 and so because Paul uses it to describe immorality adultery legalism Jesus uses it to describe hypocrisy ritualism rationalism liberalism what kinds of conclusions can we draw? Whatever it means, it means that people are sometimes influenced by that which is invisible, philosophical. There are influences that take place in your life that's informing you, that's informing your thinking and your living. So what are the options for the meaning of this parable? Could the dough mean the world and the leaven the influences of the world? If we believe the leaven represents the gospel and that the gospel permeates the whole world, there's a certain element in which it could seem to mean that. Is the gospel powerful? Yeah. Is it invisible? In one sense it is. The kingdom of God is within you. Is it possible that there are tremendous invisible forces at work changing, molding, shaping? Certainly that seems to be the case. We've already talked about the fact that the Bible and Christianities and Christians have clearly made 
a difference in the world in which we live. If the leaven is virtuous influences of Christianity, if it's the far-reaching influences of Jesus and his teachings and his followings and the contributions that are, making in, that are being made in the world, is there some sort of sense in which that might be true? I'm going to suggest to you that there is. But the best explanation seems to be the one that's consistent with what we've already learned in the kingdom parables. That, that the kingdom, remember, is that world in which Jesus teaches and lives and dies and comes back to life and ascends into heaven and that it speaks of that time period from the time of his ascension until the time of his second coming and that it seems more plausible to me that what Jesus is basically saying is that the Christianity or the development of the Jesus movement would include the smuggling in of impure elements and corrupting influences that gradually infect the whole host. The make-believer, the false Christians, create false growth, the mustard seed, which includes false doctrine. See again the, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, the, the, the leaven of the Sadducees, Jesus uses leaven as a picture. Not of a positive thing, but of a corrupting thing. Of hypocrisy in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Of false teaching in Matthew 16, verse 6. Of compromise in Matthew twenty-two sixteen. 16. It seems Amazing to me that Jesus would use leaven as a picture of false teaching, hypocrisy, and compromise. And then just simply leave it to your imagination to think that, well, what if this is a good thing? But it's been my experience that false teaching is never a good thing. That hypocrisy is never a good thing. That compromise is never a good thing. Paul, by the way, will use the image of leaven to illustrate impurity, sensuality, malice, that which is evil in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. He also uses the same image to include, include false doctrine in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. Sin, like leaven, yeast, grows internally, invisibly, powerfully. Corrupting, pushing, puffing up. We find the elements of impurity and insincerity and sin as early as Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, uh, through 1 through 11, as the early church is growing. It's growing in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. There's a powerful, supernatural working of the Spirit, but then all of a sudden, sensuality, impurity, hypocrisy, and deceit come into the church. There are warnings in the epistles of Paul, John. Church history continues the sad story so that Christianity isn't entirely pure, but a mixture of good and evil, materialism and spirituality, godliness and godlessness, the destructive leaven, the rapid race to every single corner of the loaf begins to take place as it puffs up the elements. It seems to me to interpret the leaven as a picture of the gospel and the spread of the gospel not only violates the meaning of leaven in the immediate context of the parables, but the opposition and problems that Jesus has already illustrated in the first two parables and the known meaning of those parables. So what seems to make more sense? I think the meal becomes a type and a picture of bread, of communion, of nourishment, it's that thing that makes it possible for us to gather and, 
and communicate and experience friendship and fellowship and relationship with, with one another? What if the meal represents that which Jesus is in all of his entirety in the sense that is he broken and crushed for us? At the, at the Last Supper, when he says, take this and eat it, all of you, this is my body which will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Is there also a sense in which we could read way too much into the parable? Because can you corrupt Jesus? Can you make it possible for Jesus to be not nourishing? I'm going to suggest to you that that's impossible. So what happens with false Christians and false teaching and false followers and a false communion? Instead of getting that which is nourishing, enriching, healthy, you wind up getting something that's sour. It's interesting to me, too, that if this is the food that's given to God's people, then it also might mean the food that is given to the people in substitute. If the leaven is compromise and false doctrine, then the woman is a false prophet who teaches and beguiles the believers. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, we see a picture of a woman in their midst who beguiles the congregation. Many of the false cults have been founded and championed by misguided women, whether it's Christian science or, or other false groups like Seventh-day Adventists. Many of the false cults have been founded and championed by misguided women, but in all fairness to all of our cult friends, most of them have been founded by misguided men. So are women capable of misguiding people? Yeah. Are men capable of misguiding people? Yeah. And for the person who objects and says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why would Jesus liken the kingdom of heaven to something that's wicked or evil or compromised? And the answer seems very clear from the first two parables. Where the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man who sows a field where there's the presence of both wheat, grain, and tares, weeds. If the kingdom's like a field where there is both the believer and the make-believer, if the kingdom is like a mustard seed where there's abnormal growth, if the kingdom is like leaven where there's false growth, what of the other parables like the treasure that's hidden in the field or like the merchant seeking beautiful pearls or like a dragnet that captures fish and some of the fish are rotten and some of the fish are edible, some are clean and unclean, Later in Matthew's gospel, he tells the story of a man who finds himself at a wedding feast and he has the wrong clothes on. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 13, in that parable, the man is asked, why didn't you come to the wedding in the right attire? He isn't politely asked to leave. He's bound hand and foot and he's cast into outer darkness where the Bible says in Matthew 20, 12, 22, 12, Jesus has him saying, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. In that sense, he brings about the reality that there is a mixed multitude who come into circumstances where one is invited and welcome and the other is uninvited and rejected. I think that there's a reason why these kingdom parables are called mystery parables. What happens when the king is accepted? What happens when the king is rejected? And clearly Satan has done a masterful job of introducing not only false teaching into the church, but also a false living into the body of Christ where Christians are left with the impression that they're welcome to do whatever anybody in the world does. 
God saves you through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, lest any person should boast. You are saved and then God invites you to demonstrate that salvation to everyone around you. How can you demonstrate that salvation through hypocrisy and selfishness and wickedness? Is that salvation? Are you demonstrating salvation to your husband or your wife or your children? Are you demonstrating salvation to a watching world when you live exactly like they do? It's interesting to me. The Huffington Post reports that the leaders of the United Methodist Church are scheduled to meet in Portland to consider about a thousand legislative petitions in favor of embracing the LGBT community. For those of you who don't know what LGBT stands for, it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered. More than a hundred pastors, deacons, elders, and other leaders in their group released a letter right before the meeting proclaiming their solidarity with the LGBT community and revealing their own affiliation with it. In other words, a hundred pastors and leaders in their church says, not only do we support and encourage it, we are them. And I'm going to read what they wrote word for word, quote, Our prayer as the church begins its time of discernment is that you will remember that there are nameless ones around the world hungry for a word of hope and healing, unquote. The letter continues, quote, LGBTQ people and their families exist in every church in every continent of this denomination. The reason why they say that is because the vast majority of the people coming are from Africa and Asia and Europe. They are seeking to remain in faithful relationship with you even when you refuse because they know God's tender mercies and great faithfulness, unquote. In other words, here's what they're doing. They use the term our prayer as the church begins its time of discernment. Discernment loses all meaning because discernment means the ability to determine right from wrong and good from evil. How ironic that the leaders in their letter use the term if discernment really does mean the ability to divide the truth and right from wrong. How does faithful relationship require the recognition of sin instead of repentance from sin and turning from sin? How is it possible that you can have hope and healing apart from the gospel, apart from Christ? Apart from repentance, how is that even possible? Does their petition ask the United Methodist Church to abandon the Bible's teaching concerning sexual immorality and sexual impurity and embrace the view that sexual boundaries and gender spectrum include something other than male and female when the Bible says, these are the words of Jesus, That God in the beginning created them male and female he created them. Jesus didn't give us a, a gender spectrum. Why am I even using this? Because this issue simply illustrates the much broader problem with the church. It seems odd to me that a church would have to debate whether or not sexual impurity and immorality are in fact impure and immoral. How did it come to that? I'll tell you how it came to that. Because I love the taste of sourdough bread. It's yummy. I really do. The best dough I've ever had was in San Francisco. And the best sourdough bread I've ever had is in San Francisco. It's because our culture has developed a taste for and a commitment to something that's corrupt. Something that's impure. 
False teaching and false living has plagued the church from its very beginning. Do you think that when Jesus read the Huffington Post that he said to John Wesley, John, I just got some terrible news for you about the Methodist church. I wanted to say that John Wesley was rolling over in his grave, but guess what? John Wesley is in heaven. George Whitfield who had some differences of opinion with John, with John Wesley, was one, once asked the question, George, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And George Whitfield said, oh, no. I won't see John Wesley in heaven. He'll be so close to the throne, and I'll be so far, far back that I'm fairly certain that I won't get a glimpse of him at all. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, we read these sad sad words they went out from us but they weren't of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out from us that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us there's a reason why people leave churches and I hope and pray that you leave this church the day that you decide the Bible's not true, that Jesus isn't Lord, that salvation isn't by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or that you come to the conclusion that your life doesn't really matter, that God doesn't care and the Bible doesn't care, that you're free to live your life any way you want to, in rebellion and immorality and disobedience and indecency. Do doing the right thing make you have a right relationship with God? No. The Bible says exactly the opposite. In order for you to have a right relationship with God, you have to be saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. And that the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you is going to give you the ability, if you will, to love him and honor him and serve him in the capacity that he's called you to. So how in the world did all of this happen? Why in the world would the church turn from the gospel and the Bible and the Lord Jesus? Paul pleads with the Thessalonians, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul told Timothy, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. In what sense? The doctrine that Jesus is the Lord, that, he, that we're saved by grace through faith. Jesus said, I preach Jesus and him crucified for, you, for the forgiveness of your sin. He says, charge some that they teach no other doctrine or give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Do not teach anything that's contrary to sound doctrine in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. The word sound doctrine, the word sound is the word hygienia. You know that word, hygiene. It's the word that you use for your junior hire to put deodorant under his armpit because the skin cells are corrupting under there. In order to retard the corruption, you have to use deodorant. We're each and every one of us dying slowly but surely. Hygiene means clean and pure. How in the world did we come to a place in our culture and our society where we had to have a conversation about men in the men's room and women in the women's room? Hey, what happens if a person comes into our church and they self-identify in some sexually broken circumstance? Are we looking for reasons to get rid of people? No. The Bible says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. The Bible says, do good to all, but especially those who are in the household of faith. Are we looking for reasons to make life miserable or to persecute anyone? The answer is no, but we're inviting everyone, no matter what their background, we're inviting everyone, no matter what their sexually broken identity might be, we're inviting them to know Jesus, to experience his love and his mercy and grace and forgiveness that's found in Christ. 
What's the common thread of all of these parables? It would seem that Satan has the upper hand in both the church and the popular culture. Satan opposes the work of God. Satan plants counterfeit Christians, encouraging counterfeit growth, introducing counterfeit teachings. And the resolution doesn't take place until the end of the age when Jesus shows up and knows the truth about what's inside of every person's heart. He separates the right from the wrong and the good from the bad. There will be an explosion of growth in counterfeit congregations and there will be a withering and a winnowing and a shrinking of those congregations committed to biblical integrity and the truth of the gospel. There's a reason why Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many that go that way. Narrow is the way that leads to salvation. There are few that find it. So what's the common thread? Mystery. The presence and prosperity of good and evil side by side until the kingdom comes to an end. Leaven works quietly, silently, gradually, consistently. Do you know what leaven always does? It changes the quality of the dough. It is dough, but it's been changed. Do you understand what I'm saying? If leaven changes the quality of the dough, it is dough, but it is changed. You will be changed by what you allow to influence you. What is it that you're filling your mind with? And what is it that you're filling your heart with? And what is it that you're filling your circumstances with? And what is it that you're filling your affections with? What is it that's influencing you? What is it that's determining how you think and what you think and where you go and what you say? Again, the king's purpose in speaking the parables in verses 34 and 35, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. And without a parable, he didn't speak to them. Here, Matthew offers a pause and a moment to reflect. It would appear that from this moment on in the duration of Christ's ministry in the Galilee, all of his public teachings are in parables. For what reason? In verse 35, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world, unquote. Here, that which was spoken by the prophet is a quote from the psalmist in Psalm 78, verse 2. By the way, if you do a little research, you just flip in your Bible to Psalm 78, verse 2, you discover that the person who wrote that was Asaph. He was a poet and a prophet. He lived during the time of David and Solomon. And the psalm itself is a review of the history of the Jewish people from the time of Abraham to David. The theme of the psalm is God's faithfulness in spite of the persistent rebellion and disobedience of the Jewish people. Asaph calls his psalm a parable and dark. That means secret or hidden. It would seem that Jesus speaks in parables once again to reveal to some and conceal from others. Asaph teaches and gives instruction, new insights into the kingdom of God that would come in spite of the people's unfaithfulness and disobedience. And this seems to be the dark and mysterious circumstances. How is it possible for a people to be wicked and rebellious and disobedient and God be faithful and true and gracious and merciful at the same time? And the answer, of course, you know, it's Jesus. Jesus becomes the satisfying solution 
to the problem of wickedness in the human heart. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, we discuss the reasons for the Lord speaking in parables. In that passage, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, 9. He uses it to explain the parables. The hearts of the people were hard. Their eyes were clouded. Their ears were stopped. They were dull and they were hard and they were blind. And Jesus will use these stories to provoke curiosity for those who are truly interested in the truth. But he will use these stories to hide the truth from those who have no interest in the truth whatsoever. I don't care about what God has to say and I don't care about what the Bible has to say and I don't care about what Jesus has to say. Hey, guess what? Then you will discover exactly what you always wanted to discover. The parables were never meant to hide the truth from those who want to know the truth. The proud won't see. The humble will be given access to the truth, to those things that were kept secret since the foundation of the world. Why parables? To reveal the truth to those who are interested. Why parables? To conceal the truth from those who have no interest whatsoever. Why parables? To fulfill prophecy and reveal mystery. Why would Jesus' speech bring truth to some and judgment to others? Because Jesus has already warned us. For those who have, they'll be given more. For those who have, but neglect what they have, even what they have will be taken away. The one who wants more truth will get it. The one who wants less truth will get exactly what they want. So what will happen in the king's absence what will happen to this thing called the church once Jesus ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father and all of the people are left to do whatever they want well there will be a tiny group of people who won't do whatever they want they'll align themselves with Jesus and his word and his teaching, and the truth. Once again, it seems that there will be a mixture of the good and the evil, the true and the false, the believer and the make-believer, side by side, until Jesus returns. Well, does this parable simply mean that there are invisible forces at work within the kingdom? Maybe. Could it mean more? I think so. Is Jesus warning his disciples about the church's future? Does he envision a world where not everyone who claims to be a Christian is? And where not everyone who claims to be in the kingdom is? And where not everyone who claims to tell the truth does? Does Jesus anticipate Satan's opposition in the church's past, in the church's present, in the church's future. For those of you who have an opportunity to come either Wednesday or Thursday, I'm going to tell you a little bit of an, in advance what I'm going to be talking about. In the world, if we're going to make it, we're going to need to magnify God. If we're going to make it, we're going to need to mortify the flesh. That means we're going to have to put to death those things that are dishonoring and displeasing to God in our life. But there's a third thing that we're going to need to do. Simplify our lives. By the way, you won't be able to mortify your flesh or simplify your life if you are unwilling to magnify the Lord. You won't have sufficient reason. It will never, ever make sense to you. To deny yourself 
And it will never, ever make sense to you to live your life for Jesus until you have a clear picture of who God really is, of who Jesus really is, and what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are capable of doing in your life. Remember what these parables are supposed to do. They're supposed to provoke you, to get you to think about your life, what you need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that as we think about these important things, that once again we would be amazed at your love, amazed at your grace, amazed that you offered salvation to people like us. And Lord, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that if we're going to demonstrate that salvation to others, that we must, in fact, really be saved. And Lord, again, I pray for that person in the dark, in the desperate emptiness of their own heart and their own life who are being kicked and hurt and abused by the broken circumstances of their life and they want something real and true and meaningful. Lord, I pray for the person who's fed up and disgusted with their sin and wants more than anything to experience hope and forgiveness a willingness to turn from the rebellion and disobedience in their life and to turn to the Lord, to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus and accept the invitation of life. Is that you? Are you a person who needs to know Jesus and you don't really know him? And you've never received him as your Lord and your Savior. You've never actually turned from your sin and experienced what it means to be born again. Just raise up your hand and I'll pray for you. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward and to pray with me. You know that you need to have a right relationship with God and you don't. You need to experience his love and his mercy and you haven't. And maybe you're a Christian. You've been saved. But for whatever reason, you're not acting like a saved person. You're not allowing the grace and the mercy and the peace and the joy that comes from having a right relationship with God manifest in the real relationships that you have with one another. And you need to be able to demonstrate what God has already done in your life. I want to pray for you as well. Heavenly Father, I pray for both the believer and the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, Lord, I pray that they would come into a right relationship with you, that they would turn from their sin and, and turn to the Savior. For the make-believer, for the Christian who describes himself or herself as a Christian, but for whatever reason, their life has not changed. Lord, I pray that with all of their heart, they, they would desire that what's on the inside would become so real and so evident to everyone on the outside that they would ask that question, what's going on inside of your heart? What is it that you have? How is it possible for you to have such peace, such joy, such love, such contentment? Lord, I pray that we would be able to give the right answer, that it's Jesus in me, the hope of glory, the salvation that we've experienced, the love that we have, and the mercy that we've experienced for ourselves. How could we keep it to ourselves? And so again, Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for real hope, real health, real healing, which can never take place we desire to live a life of rebellion and disobedience, committed to sin instead of committed to a savior. And so, Father, we commit these things to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
And everybody said, let's stand.